The new cemetery in Bucha is on the outskirts of town, and we're driving with Mihailia Skorik-Sheviska. She told us to call her Mika, and she's taking us down a dirt road that runs down one side of the graveyard. And this is the alley of heroes, so we could go out. Mika used to be a deputy mayor in Bucha. Now she runs an NGO. And she's borne witness to Ukraine's 20 months of fighting, which has now dissolved to a grinding counteroffensive, where progress is being measured in feet. The toll it's all taking can be felt right here, in the cemetery in Bucha. The burial ground is huge, like the size of a football field. The steady stream of bodies that arrive here serve as a reminder that this war, above all else, is a war of attrition. Each side is trying to kill enough enemy soldiers and destroy enough of their equipment so the cost of continuing becomes too much to bear. Many are missing in action, and some have found their way here. They have their own section of the cemetery. It's announced by a regimental row of full-sized blue and yellow Ukrainian flags. One flag stands at each grave. Each waves from its own sturdy metal pole. And each pole is topped with a trident, Ukraine's national coat of arms. Color photographs of the fallen are etched on the surface of the black marble tombstones. That's uh, the text you see and the pictures you see that all uh, provided by the family. Each family has its own ritual or specific how they memorize their beloved ones. Now we have not enough room for our heroes because too many victims. And so when you built this, you thought it would be enough? It's very hard. It's very hard uh, question to say. We want to have our heroes alive, not killed. But unfortunately, we have to pay by our freedom when the best people of Bucha and of Ukraine are fighting and they are killed during the fights. The civilian graves are crowded in next to each other. They're marked by wooden crosses and big wreaths of fading paper flowers, some blue, others purple, a little red. The remains of those that have yet to be identified are in a temporary section. Because when Bucha was liberated, Volunteers collected lots of bodies, and it was hard to identify and to bury them all. The graves are marked by a simple cross with a strip of black paper that bears a handwritten number in silver ink. And for Mika, this new cemetery, the desire to have Bucha be known for something beyond the terror of the occupation, isn't just an academic exercise. It's very personal. Your husband died in Donbass or Crimea? Or? Uh, my f- husband was killed in Ilovaisk in 2014. That's in the Donbass in eastern Ukraine. Uh, he was uh, like volunteer soldier. He was not a military person. He was a director of local transport company. Mm-hmm. So nothing connected with the, the war, but he understood that uh, this is uh, very important to protect Ukraine. She said he told her there was no choice but to fight. If he didn't stop Putin in the Donbass, he said as he was leaving, Putin would keep going all the way to Kyiv. 
and his words became true in eight years when Putin decided to increase the battlefield according to his crazy ideas, because his idea is to have Ukraine without Ukrainians. The contours of what happened in Bucha are familiar by now. To get to Kyiv, Russian soldiers had to go through Bucha first. And when the capital didn't fall, as Moscow had planned, the Russian soldiers stayed here in this bedroom community and wreaked havoc. Uh, civilians thought before the full-scale invasion that was some kind of military operation and that not very dangerous for them. Mm-hmm. Now, but the people fact, of Bucha could be uh, forgiven for thinking that the laws of war, the Geneva Conventions, would protect them. They were just civilians. They assumed they were safe. Bucha, just outside Kiev, is not just a battlefield, it's a crime scene. But in fact, uh, most of those who were killed here, they were killed by automatic guns from very short distance, not uh, because of military operation. So most were shot in the back of the head. Many had their hands bound behind their backs. Bucha, it became like uh, the museum of uh, war crimes. But this isn't a story about that brutalizing chapter of Bucha's history, at least not exactly. This is a story about what comes after. Bucha had been labeled a place of tragedy, and it wants to be known for something else entirely, as a model for exacting justice. Traditionally, war crimes trials have been largely unsatisfying. The cases take decades to build, perpetrators rarely go on trial, and even more infrequently end up behind bars. Families of victims often don't live long enough to see justice done. Bucha wants its story to have a different ending. Yes, for us, justice is extremely important to punish those who did the crimes and who gave the orders to those who did the crimes. I'm Dina Templerest, and this is Click Here, a podcast about all things cyber and intelligence. We tell true stories about the people making and breaking our digital world. Today, Ukraine began gathering evidence of atrocities from the very first days of the war. It wants to ensure the perpetrators of crimes in Ukraine, all the way up to Russian President Vladimir Putin himself, are brought to justice. That's why, even before the fighting is over, the preparation for high-level trials is well underway. We'll explain. Stay with us. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. 
We first talked with Mahildia Skorik-Shaviska more than a year ago. Before the war, she was helping the mayor in Bucha make city services more efficient by doing things like allowing residents to pay parking tickets or renew their driver's licenses online. She exudes the kind of warm determination of a woman who knows how to get things done. Shortly after Russian soldiers left Bucha, Mika's bosses asked her to apply her technical skills in a different way. They wanted her to build a database to identify an account for the dead. It was very important to identify everybody and to have names instead of body bags, you know. Uh, For families, that was important to bury their beloved ones in the proper way. And for us, as Abucha City Council, it was very important to help them to identify uh, everybody. Because we understand that to identify, we need to have uh, the details about every case. Details about every case, like where people were found, the wounds they suffered, what family and friends might have seen. Anything they might have recorded on their cell phones that could provide clues as to how their loved ones died. So that's why here we were helping families, we were helping investigators. Lots of stuff the families have to do themselves because we understand that more cases will be um, documented, properly documented and properly investigated, more um, killers. The more killers can be brought to justice, she means to say. All those details that Mika and her staff collected so early on have become part of a long chain of evidence, a foundation for the International Criminal Court in The Hague, known as the ICC, to build war crimes cases. And while the ICC can't talk about its cases until they're presented in court, news organizations, like the New York Times, have done their own investigations about what happened in Bucha. And what they've discovered can give us a pretty good idea what prosecutors are likely to do. Take, for example, the New York Times investigation of a massacre that happened on a single street in Bucha called Yabunska Street. They took security footage and witness testimony and then married it to incriminating cell phone videos like this one. In the frame, you can see a muddy street in Bucha, and the person recording the scene is counting bodies. Four, five, six, he says as he pauses for a split second on each corpse. These are clearly civilians. They're wearing parkas and wool hats, and they're lying on the street at strange angles. This is really the road of death, he says. There are reams of evidence that make clear the Russian soldiers arrived with a systematic plan to brutalize the city. Mika said they arrived with lists of specific people to target. You were on a Russian list. They were looking for you, right? Um... Yeah, I, they created the list, we knew that, so I had uh, a deal with the mayor that I'm evacuating, and they did it last minute. On, These little lists are almost standard operating procedure for invading regimes. They target anyone of stature in the community who might oppose them. And that typically means politicians, journalists, lawyers, and priests. 
Mika, as deputy mayor, had been on the list for years. Police in Minsk had told her as much long before the invasion. When I traveled to Minsk, to Belarus, Belarusian police invited me to their office and told me that, look, you are blacklisted in Russia, so it's not good for you to stay in Belarus anymore because uh, we are like their partner state and we have to report them about you. And if you come back again, we will do that. So please uh, go away and never come back. The point was, she said, the target list was systematic and years in the making. Russian soldiers didn't go rogue. They were following orders. As part of the plan, Mika said, Russia had divided Bucha into different sectors and assigned specific regiments to each. Investigators have subsequently been able to find evidence to link those sectors to particular officers and particular war crimes. And now that's the key question for the investigators to identify each officer who were involved in different sectors in Bucha. So that was not one person, that lots of officers. They came here with the instructions to kill uh, civilians, and they did that. So the point being, it's not a rogue unit who did this. This was a plan Yeah. come in and yeah. do this and terrorize Bucha. Exactly. In one of their investigations, the New York Times reporters concluded that the perpetrators were Russian paratroopers from the 234th Air Assault Regiment. They used CCTV footage to zoom in on insignia on the soldiers' uniforms. They used facial recognition to identify people by name. They even were able to find the unit's leader, Lieutenant Colonel Artem Holodilov. They had obtained pictures of him there and radio intercepts with his call sign. Soldiers from the unit had also been placed there with things like cell phone records. 22 of them allegedly called home to Russia using the phones of people who'd been killed on Yablonska Street. Ukraine's Office of the Prosecutor General has over 200 prosecutors dedicated to investigating these war crimes. And they're hard at work sifting through precisely the same kind of evidence the New York Times put together. One of the things that makes the war crimes committed in Ukraine different from the ones that came before it in, say, Serbia or Croatia or Syria or Rwanda is that Russia's invasion of Ukraine unfolded during what may be the golden age of surveillance. It isn't just high-resolution satellites and closed-circuit cameras, but the fact that there are smartphones in every pocket and newer technologies like facial recognition software that can make quick work of identification. Hello. Hello. I'm Dina. Yes, Leonid. Yes, uh, nice we to talked, meet you. Yes, do you remember we talked on the phone? Leonid Timchenko was one of the leaders of Ukraine's national police in those early days of the war. Now he's a deputy minister in the interior ministry. He's tall and thin and has a brush-cut haircut. He studied at the FBI Academy in Quantico. And he's seen firsthand how technology is speeding the wheels of justice. He says street cameras in places like Bucha and neighboring Irpin captured hundreds of thousands of images of Russian soldiers in the act as they were committing war crimes. When people who came to Bucha, to Irpin, and at the ever beginning of their invasion, they didn't use masks because they thought that in a couple of days or a couple of weeks they will, uh, they will be in Kyiv. And because the soldiers weren't wearing masks, facial recognition software could identify them. 
Leonid and his team were using a program from an American company called Clearview AI. Users can just upload a picture and it'll find a match in just seconds. Leonid said he and his team started identifying specific Russian soldiers just five days into the conflict. That meant they were able to start collecting evidence against perpetrators almost as soon as the invasion began. They are already committing crimes, and we are starting our activity to collect information from uh, cameras, information from different sources which were able to capture their faces. And we started. Clearview AI has scraped some 20 billion images from social networks and other online sources all over the world. And it did that without asking the websites or the people in the photographs for consent. So it's controversial. But there's little doubt that it's helping investigators in Ukraine build their war crimes cases. Because, among other things, some of the sites Clearview has scraped pictures from are Russian social networks. So that's why that is a huge library, and it was huge support for us to identify uh, Russian military personnel. Have you passed that information to the International Criminal Court? We passed this information, first of all, to our investigators, and we already have our court decisions against specific Russians who committed crimes. When we come back, we take a look at how those war crimes cases are shaping up and try to answer an even bigger question that has plagued war crimes trials for years. How do you get the defendant? There needs to be a strategy for, for, for locating people and, and grabbing them, to be frank. We'll be right back. Blockchain, NFTs, AI. What does this mean for you and me? I'm Sherelle Dorsey, host of the TED Tech Podcast, where we bring you the latest innovations and biggest ideas in tech. Tech is evolving fast and it affects our lives, from the metaverse to the watches on our wrists. You'll learn why people in AI make good business partners, about our future self-driving robo-taxi, what the next generation of Siri, Alexa, Google looks like, and a lot more. Find TED Tech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Back in April, Ukrainian officials said they had actually registered some 80,000 war crimes claims so far. Officials told Click Here, now the number is more than twice that figure. And when you have that many, the big question becomes how to organize them. How can they be categorized into actionable cases with named defendants? The ICC has apparently already started doing that. It's believed to have at least four cases linked to alleged war crimes in Ukraine well underway. They're all related to things you've probably seen on the news, not just the crimes in Bucha that Mika helped document, but other things like the targeting of grain depots and the destruction of the Kahovka hydroelectric dam in southern Ukraine. Ukraine's president has called an emergency meeting after a major dam was blown up. The Nova Kakova The dam case is extremely important. This is Stephen Rapp. He used to be the U.S. ambassador for war crimes at the State Department, and he's prosecuted many of these kinds of cases himself. It can be maybe argued that blowing up that dam uh, with all the horrible environmental effect that it had on the populations that were inundated uh, will uh, be a, a high priority. And I think Moscow has said that the dam fell victim to accumulated damage, years of Ukrainian neglect. 
But engineers who study dam failures say there was an explosion that made it fail. There's been satellite and seismic evidence of an explosion. And Rapp says that blowing up the dam could amount to a war crime. Similarly, Russia's attacks on Ukraine's power grid and infrastructure, not just with bombs, but with cyber weapons, is also one of the cases the ICC is building. And the court has already said that cyber attacks can rise to the level of war crimes, which is a first. Does the cyber attack actually have to reach completion, i.e. the gas goes off, the water goes off, for it to be a war crime? Or if you catch it, do you prevent that? Great question. And by the way, you know, so many new things emerged and became clear and understandable to people after what happened here in Ukraine, especially in cyber realm. Ilya Vituk heads the cyber department at the Security Services of Ukraine, or SBU. Think of it as the FBI, CIA, and NSA all rolled into one. Ilya's team has been providing prosecutors with evidence for those kinds of cases. Because the SBU does incident response, the little forensic artifacts they found can help attribute these attacks on the power grid and water systems. And that's also been part of these cases. Then we take this evidence of the cyber attack, and uh, then we take the information we have, who conducted it, attribution and stuff like that, and then we put it into criminal uh, cases that will later go to ICC. And by the way... Just before the war, a Ukrainian court convicted eight hackers linked to Russia's internal security service of launching cyber attacks against Ukraine's critical infrastructure. They were tried in abstentia, which the ICC doesn't allow. But Ilya says Ukraine has gathered plenty of evidence that will allow prosecutors at the ICC to draw a straight line from cybercrime to perpetrators. Because, among other things, his teams have penetrated Russian communication systems. And we listened to their internal phone calls. And in this way, we could understand who exactly did what, executed which attacks and uh, operations, because we listen, okay, I'm deploying something now in Ministry of Infrastructure, so... You could name names. Absolutely. It's very important, and we clearly understand that there were orders. We have breaking news out of The Hague in the Netherlands. The International Criminal Court has issued an arrest warrant... For for Vladimir Putin. President of the Russian Federation and for Maria Vovabelova, Commissioner of the Russian President for Children's Right, for the alleged, alleged involvement war crimes in abductions of children from Ukraine. Prosecutor Steve Rapp says this case linking Putin to the abductions is pretty rock solid. The you know, study shows at least 6,000 children forcibly deported. The, the Ukrainians say at least 20,000. And that's never permitted uh, in, in a conflict without consent or notice. Uh, Russian officials have admitted to what they're doing, and the action is definitely a crime. So it is uh, uh, the equivalent of a slam dunk. And that might be making some people in Russia nervous. So it may not be a coincidence that this past fall, there were two very directed cyber attacks, just weeks apart, on war crimes prosecutors both in Kyiv and the ICC. Ukrainian officials say Russian hackers broke into the general prosecutor's office. The SBU's Ilya Vituk says wanton hacking is Russia's MO. They conduct vast phishing campaigns. So they try to penetrate everywhere uh, where it is possible. 
And that includes the general prosecutor's office. Some officials in Ukraine believe the hack happened because Russia wanted to see what kind of evidence they had to figure out who the witnesses were, and maybe which specific units or specific officers were implicated so they could be moved out of Ukraine before they were arrested. Europol, for its part, is in charge of investigating the ICC breach. They haven't attributed the attack yet and wouldn't say whether sensitive information, like witness lists or evidence, was stolen. The ICC would only allow that it appeared the attack was part of an espionage campaign. Ilya says that while it may have been a directed attack, he doesn't think that Russia fully comprehends how serious these cases are. I don't believe that today they do understand that this payday will actually come. What no one seems to doubt is that all these cyber attacks on international courts and high-level arrest warrants are breaking new ground. So, you know, that's never happened before. This is Steve Rapp again. Never the head of a nuclear state, a member of the P5 of the United Nations, a permanent five member, uh, being uh, indicted by an international court. So, you know, these, this, is, this is significant. This is a, a difference. Is it affecting their conduct yet? No. <laughs> so while it isn't affecting Russia's conduct yet, that doesn't mean it won't. Consider the case of Slobodan Milosevic, who was brought up on war crimes charges related to the war in Bosnia. Milosevic was indicted in May of 1999, and a lot of people thought that was crazy. President of Yugoslavia, and what a nutty thing that is. Well, within 15 months, he couldn't uh, steal enough votes to stay in power. And he was replaced by another nationalist who agreed with him on all the policy issues, but wasn't a war criminal. And nine months after that, after Milosevic's rampant corruption was revealed, he became too hot to handle in Belgrade. And then, meanwhile, the international community was saying, sanctions don't come off Serbia, you don't get your money unfrozen, etc. Uh, you, uh, you know, continue to have problems, uh, unless you turn him over. And can you imagine that happening in this case? We could. Same thing. You want your 300 billion frozen assets back, or a large part of it. You need to comply with international law. Rapp said, contrary to popular belief, Putin won't be able to negotiate complete immunity as part of some sort of peace accord with Kyiv. He said the ICC wouldn't be able to withdraw an arrest warrant once it's issued one for what would amount to political reasons. There's no provision for that in their charter. The most you can have is the Security Council can suspend action for a year at a time, but that's subject to a, a U.S. veto or veto from, from other countries. You know, I, I don't think it's, uh, this, this is not something that's going to, uh, uh, to go away. It, back in Russia, even though Putin is extremely strong and very, very dangerous, there really has never been accountability for the crimes committed by the, by the Russian regimes. They think they can get away with these crimes and... Uh, it's absolutely necessary that this time there be accountability. That's exactly what Mika, the former deputy mayor of Bucha, wants. She doesn't want Bucha to be known for all the terrible things that happened there. She wants it to be remembered for being the place that held Putin and his generals to account. Yes, for us, justice is extremely important because Putin became who he is because he was not punished after Chechen war, after Syrian war. So he was not punished uh, of, because of that. Uh, that inspired him. Amiga says that 
Bucha doesn't intend to allow the wheels of justice to grind slowly. The trial of Milosevic and his cronies took too long. We learned, for example, from Bosnian experience, and they were saying us that first verdict they received in 27 years. In Ukrainian war story, we will have uh, faster uh, results. In the Ukrainian war story, she said, Bucha will go down in history for having faster results. This is Click Here. Here are some of the top cyber and intelligence stories of the past week. France's top cybersecurity agency said in a new report that a hacking group known as Fancy Bear, or APT28, has been spying on French universities, government agencies, and think tanks. Fancy Bear is thought to be the hacking arm of the GRU, Russia's military intelligence agency. The National Cybersecurity Agency of France said that the hackers had compromised devices that weren't closely monitored, things like routers, and they used phishing emails to break into the systems. The emails looked like they were coming from hotel chains, capital management companies, and even tech firms. The Federal Trade Commission has approved a new rule that will require non-banking financial institutions with sensitive financial information, things like mortgage backers or payday lenders, to report data breaches and security events within 30 days of their discovery. The new rule will be added to the safeguards rule that requires financial institutions to report incidents involving the information of at least 500 customers to the FTC. Under the rules, security breaches require notification if unencrypted customer information has been acquired without the authorization of the individual to which the information pertains. And finally, for more than three weeks, Gaza has been struggling with an almost total internet blackout, as Israel has stepped up military action in the region in response to a Hamas attack against Israel on October 7th. People in Gaza are having trouble communicating with family and friends, and rescue workers have been unable to connect to mobile networks, which has hobbled recovery efforts. Internet monitoring groups say connectivity appears to be a fraction of what it once was. The blackout comes as Israel Defense Forces appear to be expanding their ground operations in Gaza. Among the concerns? That the lack of connectivity will obscure events as they are unfolding on the ground. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and I'm the executive producer and host of the show. Sean Powers is our senior producer and marketing director. Will Jarvis is our producer, and Lucas Riley and Jade Abdul-Malik are our staff writers. Our editing team is led by Karen Duffin and Lou Wolkowski, and Darren Ancrum does our fact-checking. Special thanks this week to Darina Antonuk and Daniel Puchdarov for their help with our reporting on the ground in Ukraine. Our theme and original music compositions are by Ben Levingston. We also use music from Blue Dot Sessions. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts, or send us an email at clickhere at recordedfuture.com. And check out our website with details about our shows and our whole show catalog at clickhereshow.com. That's a wrap for this week. I'm Dina Temple Rest. We'll be back on Tuesday.
Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.